Well, it is, a, it is a delight and a privilege this morning to be here at Florence Baptist Temple. For many, many years, I've heard of your ministry, even way back to my younger years, and yet I've never had the privilege to be here until this morning. And it has been a delight to get to know your pastor and the little time that we've had together this morning. The only Bill Monroe I knew about was a bluegrass guy. I'm sure you've never heard that before. And I, I play the mandolin, so uh, I already have a kind affection for your pastor this morning. I'd like to introduce some of the folks that are with us here from uh, Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina, and I'd like to have the students stand. I'm not going to introduce them by name, but I have five students with me this morning, so three down here in the front. And we got two robed up here in the uh, orchestra here, these two ladies playing the violin, and they'll be singing tonight, and I think you'll really enjoy their ministry. Then uh, also we have our two uh, pilots who uh, fly us around on Sundays. We, we are out every Sunday, and uh, these two gentlemen are wonderful blessing. And first of all, Mr. Pete Brower. Pete, would you stand? And Mr. Morgan Paris. These two gentlemen have been flying for Bob Jones University together for over 30 years. Uh, not the same plane, by the way. They told me recently they learned to fly under two brothers named Wright. And uh, so they're wonderful gentlemen. And then Dr. Sam Horn. Sam, if you'd stand. Sam is the executive vice president, one of the executive vice presidents of Bob Jones University. He's over our seminary, our whole Bible training program and he's also in charge of all of our enrollment. So very thankful to have Sam with us. We have a, thank you. We have a table out in the lobby of the church. We'd love for you to stop by, and we have uh, a lot of different things from Bob Jones University that we'd love for you to look over. Bob Jones was founded in 1927 by an evangelist named Bob Jones Sr., who was a world-renowned preacher in his day. He started the university for two reasons. Number one, he had a personal burden because he had a son that he wanted to have a Christian uh, higher education that was a liberal arts education. Liberal arts meaning teaching you to think and critically think and think things through. But he wanted it to have a biblical worldview with an emphasis on character development. That was his personal burden. Second burden he had is he was concerned about the negative impact of the secular and the liberal education of the 1920s in the United States of America. Think about that one. So Bob Jones University was founded because of that. <clears throat> this year we are celebrating our 91st year. And we have over 40,000 graduates. We have currently students from your school here that are at Bob Jones University. And I would like to say that probably if I could maybe put it in a nutshell of why people come to Bob Jones, first of all, and this is what we're so thankful for, is they're coming for the spiritual atmosphere. There's no place like it. If you're a Christian that you love the Bible and you really want to live for Jesus Christ and you're committed to the ethics of the scriptures, Christian living, then Bob Jones University is a perfect place for you because we have a student body of over 2,500 students that come from 50 United 50 of the states in 42 foreign countries. And they come from all over the world for the atmosphere and the education that they receive. Second reason students come is because of the academic excellence. We just got ranked this past week 
as one of the best regional universities in the South. And we also got ranked the seventh best or best value uh, regional university in the South just this past week. And so we're proud in the proper sense of our academics and the quality of education that you receive there as a graduate. And then the third reason people come is because of actually the relationships that are built. Because Christianity is a relationship, first of all, with God and then with other believers. And so the atmosphere is one of mentorship with, with, with uh, uh, professors to students, and then the atmosphere it develops and nurtures with those that are there. So if you've never been to Greenville, South Carolina, to Bob Jones University, then you, you didn't really go to Greenville. So we want to have you come sometime and visit the university and be a part of it and experience what God is doing there. Uh, Pastor mentioned this. The other thing I'm really thankful for to be here is I'm a native South Carolinian. I grew up in the capital city of Columbia. So by by virtue of my birthright, I'm a Gamecock fan and not a Tiger fan. I want to make that very clear. I already know I've split the congregation this morning, but your pastor and I are on the right side. So uh, I want you to understand that. Uh, secondly, I'm a, I'm a proud graduate of the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, graduated in 1978. My degree was in business administration, but it was during my freshman year as a cadet that I became a believer. I grew up in a nominal Christian home. I went to church, but I really didn't understand the gospel until I really got into college and, and became a believer, grew in fellowship with the Lord at that time and surrendered to the call to preach and then prepared for ministry at Bob Jones University and then went out into the ministry. And uh, 34 years, I served five years as a youth pastor, 29 years as an evangelist. And then I got a phone call from the chairman of the board of Bob Jones University and asked me if I would consider becoming the next president. I'm the fifth president of Bob Jones. I'm the first president of Bob Jones who is not a Jones. And so, by the way, my mother's maiden name is Jones, so that helps it all. Uh, But it's been a wonderful blessing. It's been a great challenge, to be honest with you, but we're thankful for the good things that the Lord is doing, and we're seeking to take a stand for Jesus Christ in our day and age. We believe the Bible's God's word from cover to cover. We believe God inspired it. We believe God has preserved it. We believe God, we have it today. We believe that Christians ought to live like Christians. We believe that you should be different from the world, not like the world. We believe in evangelism. We believe getting the gospel out. Yesterday, we had a Go Greenville crusade, and we sent out three to 400 of our students out all over Greenville doing evangelistic work. So if you come to Bob Jones, it's not just about getting an education, but it's an education that is centered around Christ and his gospel. And so our desire is to send our students out all over the world serving Christ wherever God leads them whether it's in ministry or whether it's in business or whether it's in medicine. And so I hope that you would consider looking us over and uh, maybe that be a part of your future. I'd like to invite your attention this morning, please, to two passages of Scripture I'd like us to read. The first is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and then from there we will go over to the book of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. My intention this morning is to focus on one very, very clear what I would say, element of the gospel. And as we focus on it, we'll, go, we'll dive deep into the, if I could say, deeper understanding of the nature of the gospel. And that is this morning, I'd like to speak to you on the theme that Christ, Jesus, died for our sins. 
And I would like us to go deeper if I could. If you've ever done any snorkeling, you understand that if you look at the ocean, it all looks the same until you put a mask on, drop below, below the water, and you see a whole new world. Many ways, that's what happens when we begin to study the Bible. We begin to understand in a greater way, a greater understanding, a greater comprehension of what God has done for us. That's what I like us to look at this morning. So we're reading this morning, beginning in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which you also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures." Now, may you please turn with me to Romans chapter 5, and if you will, please note verse 8. Romans 5 and verse 8. But God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us sinners. My message is very simple this morning. It's entitled, Christ Died for our sins. May we bow our heads together for prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your perfect and true word. Thank you that you have given it to us. And Lord, I pray that you would bless the word of God this morning. We realize that salvation is your miracle work, and we pray for that today. We pray for our visitors, our guests who have come, perhaps without hope and without God in this world. We pray, Lord, that you will draw them unto yourself, and God, that you would do a work through the understanding and the, the, the comprehension of the gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 152 years ago, and just six days after the surrender of Robert E. Lee and his troops in Northern Virginia to General U.S. Grant in Appomattox, Virginia, our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, was attending a play at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. It was what we call Good Friday. The play was entitled Our American Cousin. He went there not necessarily to celebrate the end of the Civil War, but just to relax. But little did he know that there was a sinister, a sinister plot that had been hatched by a famous actor named John Wilkes Booth. His intention was to relight the fires of the Civil War once again by assassinating the president, the vice president, and the secretary of state. When he received the news that President Lincoln would attend the theater that night, he knew the play very well because he was a famous actor. He, he would be almost like a movie star today. And he knew the play so well that he knew the lines of the play and he knew that there would be certain lines in the play where there would be an eruption of laughter in the crowd. And so his plan was to make his way up to the presidential booth, slip in the back, wait till the laughter, and then step up and kill the president. And so he waited, came in after the play had started. The president was in his booth with his wife and a couple of guests. And there was a secret service agent that was guarding the door, but 
little bit different day than it is today. He got bored and he went across the street to the local saloon to wet his whistle. And so he left the president unguarded. Booth made his way up the back stairwell, slipped in the door, stood in the shadows in the darkness. He waited for the line, and when the line was stated and the people began to laugh, he stepped up with a 44 caliber Derringer pistol, and he shot our president in the back of the head. You know the story, he later died in that night, but what Wilkes Booth tried to do never happened, thank God for that. Abraham Lincoln has gone down in history as one of the greatest presidents that ever lived because of two great accomplishments. Number one, he saved the union, and secondly, he emancipated the slaves. And today, and rightfully so, we honor him for what he has accomplished. But I would like you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that 2,000 years ago, on a Friday, like the day that Lincoln died, the day of the Jewish Passover, something took place outside the city walls of Jerusalem that is of such importance to us today that what Abraham Lincoln did in his death pales into insignificance to what happened on that day. And it was on that day, Jesus Christ died. And the scripture says that he died for our sins. This morning, I'd like us to consider three aspects of the death of Jesus for our sins and what it means for us today. The first thing I'd like you to note this morning is that the death of Jesus on the cross was actually a criminal death. It was a public execution. It was a death penalty. His death was not a series of unfortunate events. For example, Jesus wasn't an innocent victim who was being brutally murdered, though that was true. The reality in the day is that he was taken out and nailed to a cross and executed because of crimes that he had been charged with. The death of Jesus was not just a good man who gave his life in the line of duty, like, for example, the 343 firefighters and paramedics and the 60 police officers who gave their life in the line of duty on what we called 9-11 that took place 16 years ago. I want you to understand that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was being executed. It was a death penalty. June 17th, 2015, a 21-year-old young man named Dylan Roof attended a prayer service on a Wednesday night in Charleston, South Carolina. The name of the church was Emmanuel A.M.E. Church, means African Methodist Episcopal. He was welcomed by the church members, they had a small Bible study going on. The pastor was there. He sat through the entire Bible study and their prayers. And when he was finished, he took a nine millimeter pistol and he killed seven ladies, two men, one of them being the pastor. His purpose was to ignite a race war. Thank God it didn't happen. And the difference were the families of the victims who were Christians 
who said, we forgive you. But on January 10th, that young man, Dylan Roof, on January 10th, 2017, was sentenced to death for the crime that he committed against the laws of our country. I give you that illustration because I want you to feel something. And that is when Jesus Christ died on a cross, he was dying a criminal's death. It was a death penalty. Anyone who was nailed to a cross in ancient times were being executed. You say, preacher, what was the crime that Jesus committed? Well, actually, it was a twofold crime. Number one, it was a crime against Jewish law because Jesus had declared himself to be the Son of God. And to the Jew, that means that you're claiming yourself equal with God, which to them was blasphemy. And blasphemy was a crime worthy of death. Jesus claimed to be God. Secondly, he was taken to the Roman governor because the Jews could not put a man to death for a religious crime. And so they took him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who was in the city of Jerusalem. And there he was tried not for blasphemy, but he was tried for treason because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And there was no king but Caesar. And so Jesus was put to death because of treason and because of blasphemy, so much so that when he was nailed to a cross, the, per, the reason he was dying was nailed above his head. It says, King of the Jews. That was his crime. To be crucified in ancient time was a time of public humiliation and shame. The famous Roman philosopher Cicero called the cross the tree of shame. He said the word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes and ears. To die on a cross was the worst form of death known to mankind. The Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. And even the writer of the book of Hebrews said of the cross, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. And so what I want you to deposit in your heart, in your mind this morning is that when you see the cross, it is a, it's a form of execution. It's like looking at an electric chair. It's like looking at a gallows where people are hung. Jesus's death was a death penalty. But there's something else I want you to note this morning about the death of Jesus Christ. And that is not only was his death a death penalty, but his death was a substitutionary death. And that's what we read here in the text when it says in Romans 5, 8, that Christ died for our sins. The word for means on our behalf, for our sake, in our place. He was a substitute dying not for the crimes that he had committed, but he was actually dying in the place of another. Back during the Civil War, there was a man by the name of George Wyatt who was drafted into the Union Army. George came from a small town in the north with a, he had a wife and six children. There was also a young man in his village in that day named Richard Pratt. And Richard, out of a sense of compassion for, for uh, George Wyatt, decided to take his place. In those days, you could actually have a friend take your place. 
And so Richard Pratt was accepted and joined the Union Army, but he bore not his name, but he bore the name and the number of George Wyatt. Well, before long, Pratt was killed in action. And so later, the authorities sought to draft George Wyatt back into service, but he protested, and he entered the plea that he had actually died. And he said to the authorities, go consult your own records. And so they did. And they went back and they found that George Wyatt, in fact, on the records, had died in the person of his substitute, Richard Pratt. And Wyatt was thereby exempted beyond the claims of the law and any further service because Richard Pratt died in his place. I don't know if I can explain it any better than that. Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, died in your behalf on a cross. He took your place. Why did he have to die? Because the Bible says that there is a penalty or there is a judgment for sin. The wages of sin is death. God cannot forgive anyone of their sin until until justice is served and sins are paid for. And so what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago is that God sent his son out of love into the world to die on a cross in your behalf to die for your sins. I don't think I really understood that until I was 17 years old. I mentioned earlier, pastor mentioned, I grew up in Columbia. I attended church. My dad was a deacon and a Sunday school teacher and a, and a more of a liberal type church, a nominal Christian church. And so I, I knew about Jesus, but I didn't, I didn't understand what we call the gospel, the good news, the message of personal salvation. And sitting out in front of my public school one day, a friend of mine who had just recently been converted to Christ asked me a question I'd never been asked. He said, Steve, if you died today, do you know you would go to heaven? And I told him, I I don't know that. I was sincere. And so he took the Bible, and for the first time in my life, I had somebody explain to me from the Bible what it means, to how a person is saved. And the first thing he showed me was my sinfulness. He said, you're a sinner. And I said, well, I know that. I'm 17. I know what I'm doing. I grew up back in the day where you used to have the Ten Commandments up on the wall in the public schools. I remember in the fifth grade reading every single command of the Ten Commandments one day, seriously, reading them in my classroom and deciding in class, these are God's rules, therefore God wants me to keep them, and if I keep them, I get into heaven. And so I made a commitment that day, I'm going to keep all ten of them. And do you know by lunchtime, I was the most perplexed kid on on the playground? Because by lunchtime, I'd broken half of them. And I began to, began to wonder, what's the purpose of the law? Because if you can't keep the law, what's the intent? And the purpose of the law is not to show you how to get into heaven. The purpose of the law is to show you that you're a sinner. Because of the nature of our own pride, we always think we're better than we are. I don't know what you do, but I weigh myself every morning, always with the intent that I've, I'm, I'm, I'm better than I really am. And I get on that scale every morning, and some mornings I get off, and I'll, oh, yesterday was a really bad day. We all think we're better than we really are, and the law shows us what we really are. 
It reveals our sinfulness. And why did Jesus Christ die on the cross? Because folks, God is too holy to let you into heaven with your sins and God is too loving not to do something about it. And so why did he send his son? He sent his son to die on a cross to take your place. One of the best illustrations in the Old Testament is the Jewish day of atonement. That was the day that two goats were brought to the high priest to be offered as a sacrifice for the sins that the people had committed against God for that year. It was also a high and holy day. And on that day, all children, all adults, all old people, every Jew on that day fasted for 24 hours, no food, no water. And by the way, if you fast all day long, what are you waiting for? The opportunity to eat. So your, your mind is, is focused. And on that day of atonement, they were waiting for an event. And that is, as these goats were offered in sacrifice for their sin, they would know at the end of the day that their sins are forgiven. And so the two goats were brought and lots were drawn. And the first goat was to be put to death. He was a sacrifice. The second goat was to be let go free into the wilderness. He was called the scapegoat. And so that high priest took that goat, he killed the goat, shed his blood, the blood was caught in a basin, and he took that bowl or that basin with him, and he walked inside the temple. The temple had two rooms. The first room was called the holy place, the second room was called the holy of holies, and those two rooms were divided by a veil that stood 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, thick as the breadth of a man's hand, about four inches, and behind that veil was the holy, was the holy of holies, and in that room was a piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. Above the Ark of the Covenant was a slab of gold called the mercy seat, and he went in to that temple to go behind that veil to take that blood in that bowl and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and so showing that this goat died for the sins of the people and that God would accept that sacrifice as the payment sin for the people that they had committed against God that year. So he makes his way in. As he walks in, he's got on a long robe. At the bottom of his robe are little bells shaped in the form of a pomegranate. So when he walks, you could hear the bells jingling. And so he goes behind that veil. Nobody could go behind that veil because if you went behind that veil at any other time of the year, you would die. Why? Because God's presence was in that room above the mercy seat. It's called the Shekinah glory. If you try to go into God's presence with your sin, he's not going to let you. And so you're going to die. The wages of sin is death. But God will let you in his presence under one condition and that there's blood. And that is shed blood for sin. And so he goes in and he takes that bowl and he takes a little branch called hyssop and he dips it in the blood and he sprinkles it on top of the mercy seat. Now, how would they know that God had accepted the sacrifice? Because if God accepted the sacrifice, the high priest would live. If God didn't accept the sacrifice, what, what would happen to the high priest? He would die. It's risky business to be a high priest. And when God accepted the sacrifice because he didn't die, then he would turn and he would come out alive. He would come out of the veil. And as soon as he came walking out, what did people hear? They heard the jingling of the bells. And as soon as they heard the bells, then the message began to spread that God had accepted the atonement and everybody was forgiven. Now, we had a pretty good little shout here this morning after a couple of the songs. But your shout pales into insignificance to the shouting in Jerusalem when they realized that they were un not under the judgment of God. God had forgiven them.
And folks, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ went, went to a cross, died, shed his blood, and he went down into a tomb. And how do we know that God accepted his sacrifice? Because three days later, like that high priest came out from behind that veil, Jesus Christ came out from behind the veil of death, and he walked out of the tomb alive. The reason why we know that what we're preaching is true because this is history, folks. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And why did he die on the cross? He died for our sins. And God accepted the death of Jesus Christ because he raised him from the dead. But when he came out from behind that veil and came out, there was a second goat waiting for him. This is called the scapegoat. And what did he do with the scapegoat? He took his hands, put it on the head of the goat, and he confessed every sin the Jewish people had committed that year against God. I often think about how long did that take him? He obviously memorized the list because there were no teleprompters to help him remember. And you know what? He wanted to make sure he got every one because, folks, you don't want to enter God's presence with one sin. You want all your sins gone. So he confessed those sins and putting his hands on the head of the goat is a symbol of a transferal of guilt from the people to the goat. The goat took the guilt. But then they took the goat and instead of killing the goat, they took it out of the wilderness and they let it go. And what's the point? All of this is to teach a message, a lesson. The first goat died for the guilt of the people. The second goat was a reminder that God does not bring your sins up anymore after he's forgiven them. It's not just that God has forgiven you, but those sins are now cast in the depths of the deepest sea. God will not bring them up again when you stand before him. So in death, you do not have to fear your past because the past is under the blood and you've been completely forgiven. That's what it means when Jesus died. He died as a substitute to deal with your sins in full. No wonder we shouted this morning, hallelujah, what a savior. But then there's a third and final point I'd like to make this morning. And that is Jesus's death was not only a substitutionary death and not only a a death penalty, but finally, Jesus's death was a satisfactory death. Or if I could say it this way, when he died, someone was satisfied. So what do you mean by satisfaction? I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 53, if you will. Everybody here understands satisfaction. Have you ever gone out to eat at a restaurant and they, you're eating there and you're Store manager comes by and asks you, how are you doing? How's the meal? How's the service? What he wants to know is, are you satisfied? And then generally, when you're done eating and you pay for the, you pay for the meal, not only are you satisfied, but the, but the restaurant's satisfied because you paid for the meal. Everybody's happy. Everybody's satisfied. I like what the lady said to the preacher one time. She was having him over to her house to eat, and she said, preacher, do you want any more? He said, no, I'm plumb fill up to my neck. She said, well, I have apple pie out in the kitchen. He said, that's what I'm saving my neck for. (laughs) We all understand satisfaction. When Jesus died, there's something that needed to be satisfied. And that is justice had to be satisfied. We understand that. When you break the law, you have to pay the penalty. When you pay the penalty, justice is satisfied. 
But in this case, the satisfaction was not just the concept of justice, but it's, but it's also the root of where justice comes from because all justice comes from God because God is a just God. When Jesus died on the cross, he had to satisfy the justice of God. And we read in Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 10, these words, because this is a prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ. Every phrase speaks of the crucifixion. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Note this phrase. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Where did this actually take place? It was on the cross. Jesus was nailed on the cross at nine o'clock in the morning. He died at three o'clock in the afternoon. He was on the cross for six hours. The first three hours, nine to noon, it was daylight. But at high noon, it became black as midnight. And for the next three hours, there was darkness all over the land in the land of Israel. And there was a statement that Jesus made in that darkness that is very important for us to understand. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What does that mean? It means that in that lonely hour, God had turned his back on his son and he was punishing his son in the place of the human race. I believe Jesus died for the whole world. And Jesus took it on himself. He was forsaken by God as God could not look upon sin. Christ, the sinless one, took our sins on himself. And then at three o'clock in the afternoon, the light came back and Jesus cried out from the cross these words, it is finished. What it meant was that what God required for the payment of sin, Jesus paid it in full. You could say it this way, God was satisfied. Christ's death was sufficient enough to pay for all of our sins. What does that mean? It means you don't pay for your sins to get into heaven. You actually have somebody who's already paid for your sins. You accept the payment price. I often go out to eat with a preacher on Sunday. Rarely do I go out to eat with a preacher on Sunday that he doesn't pay for it. And all God's people said, and you know what? And you know what? I, I happily accept it. You understand it. Folks, it's hard for us to get this through our head, but but salvation is not something you achieve. It's something you receive. It is a gift. When Jesus died on that cross and said, it is finished, it means that what God required to pay for sin, Jesus paid it all. Folks, if God is satisfied with what Jesus did, why are you not satisfied? And so it ultimately comes down to this, that you must personally and individually make a decision to receive Christ. You have to, with your will, choose. I'd like to share, as I finish this morning, how I got saved. I mentioned I grew up in Columbia, went to the Citadel. My freshman year, um, 
I played on the varsity soccer team. My roommate on the team was a born-again Christian. And he began to share the gospel with me on a regular basis. But I, I was afraid. I was nervous. I, I, I knew it would bring a change in my life. But, but God still worked. Easter Sunday, 1975, I went to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. You ever heard of Myrtle Beach? Now, what do you go, at, what do you go to Myrtle Beach for during spring break? You go there to party. That's what I went for. It was the most miserable weekend of my life. It was just, it was just, it was just the providential hand of God. I was sick, I was miserable, I was unhappy. What I wanted, I got, and when I got it, I didn't want it. And I got up Easter Sunday morning and I started driving home. I lived in Columbia. And that was before the building of I-26. And the way you got home was you had to take Highway 378 through some of the big cities like Turbyville. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Okay, I'm telling you this because everywhere I go, nobody knows what I'm talking about. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I had to drive from Myrtle Beach to Sumter. And then from Sumter, I went right into Columbia. And on Easter Sunday, 1975, I turned on the radio and I was going to listen to the local rock station, Beach Tunes, and I decided to listen to a church service. I just tuned in and found a service. And when I tuned it in, the choir was singing. And then the preacher got up to preach. You say, what church was it? I have no idea. I do not know. I will probably never know till I get to heaven. All I know is the preacher started preaching. And a couple of things. Number one, I thought somebody had tipped him off I was driving down the highway. Because every sin I'd committed in the last three days, he talked about. And then he went from being a prophet to being a painter. The canvas was my mind, and he painted the picture of the cross, and I could see the crucifixion. I saw it in my mind. And not only did I see it in my mind, but I felt like I was standing at the foot of the cross. And when I saw Jesus dying on that cross, I didn't see him dying for the world. I saw him dying for me. And then he told a simple, just a simple message. He died, he was buried, and three days later, he came out of the grave alive. And as I sat there driving down the road, listening to the preaching, I knew it was true. I knew I believed it. I did believe it, but I had never made the decision. And then the preacher said something like this. He said, there's somebody right now driving down the highway. You're listening to me preach, and you know you need to get saved. Why don't you pull over the side of the road and get saved right now? And I looked at that radio. And see... Here's the unique thing about preaching, folks. God chooses to save people through preaching because preaching is the way that God speaks to your heart. God is not going to come out audibly and speak. That's not the way he works. He works through his word, by his Holy Spirit, and he works right into your heart. And on Easter Sunday, 1975, at the age of 19 years old, driving down a that highway 378, coming back from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, right around lunchtime, I prayed and asked Jesus to be my Savior. And I got, and I got saved. And I'm still saved. That was a long time ago. But it seems like it was yesterday.
So I want to ask you, have you been saved? You are sitting in this service this morning, and it is not an accident. It is on purpose. It is so that you could once again comprehend that God loves you and God wants you to come to him because God is speaking to your heart right now, but you need to make that decision. And the scripture says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you do that this morning? I'd like us to bow our heads and close our eyes, if you will, please.